In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said to the women, Fear not ye, for I know that you seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he goes before you into Galilee. There shall you see him. Lo, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy, and did run to bring his disciples' word.
Man, what a great job. Thank you, ladies. Let's give them one more round of applause. I'm sure you can imagine, but a lot of work goes in by a lot of different people to make a service like this happen. Excellent job. Um, I want to dismiss the kiddos right now off to class. Thank you for joining us for the singing portion, and now you get to zip off to class. I want you to pray for your old buddy, Dave. And if you don't know who that is, that's me. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. My name's Dave, and you can pray for me because I am teaching my sweet 16-year-old to drive. And it is that time of year, that time of her life. She actually came up to me after first service and said, I'm a pretty good driver. I said, I know, this is no knock on you. Um, But I'm teaching her to drive in San Jose. And these are my home streets. And what I know about San Jose um, is it's a pretty intense place to teach someone to drive. Um, this whole driving thing was uh, getting too easy for, for children coming of age into young adulthood. And so the city passed a new rule where they're putting up poles all over the city. Have you seen this? So every turn lane, every driving down an expressway, a regular road, let's put poles in. And freak everyone out. So some of these turns are really hard for experienced drivers to drive. Um, They're exceptionally hard for brand new drivers to drive. So like I said, pray for me. I am an adrenaline-loving person. But the older I get, the more this kind of adrenaline is taking its toll. Now, Bay Area drivers have a way of asking this question in a myriad of ways. What is your problem? Okay, that's what Bay Area drivers ask. They ask sometimes by driving around you impatiently, angrily, and mouthing it, what is your problem? Sometimes they use gestures, which I will not repeat here in church. Uh, Sometimes they use their horn, right? But they are asking on a regular basis of you, what is your problem? Now, that's a rude way to ask it, but I don't think it's a terrible question at all. What is your problem? Now, some of you are cat lovers. And uh, cats are very, very expressive, but for the most part, they have sort of an air of superiority and judgmentalism to them. Uh, This cat would be looking at you with with a little bit of a look on a face that says, what is your problem, right? And you're looking at this cat saying, you're the one awkwardly sitting behind a dumpster. Um, I should be asking you that, (laughs) but the cat will hold its ground and it will just stare at you asking what your problem is. I want you to ponder for a second. Uh, Maybe you had an upbringing like mine where you had a parent ask you, what is your problem? Now, my mom is no longer in our services. She's okay. She's in Atlanta. Um, But if she were here, she would attest to that she would ask that growing up. And there's really no good answer for that. I struggled with sarcasm, if you can believe it. And so my answer would most often land me in deeper trouble than my initial problem, whatever it was. But it breeds um, defensiveness Often I would try this one back on mom or dad. What is your problem, right? And again, it just escalates the whole thing. Now to show that we struggle with the apple not falling far from the tree, unbeknownst to me, I wasn't going to use this in a sermon this week, but guess what I said as a parent to one of my kids in a heated moment this week? What is your problem? It's still a terrible way to parent. It didn't work on me. It wasn't good. It didn't breed any good answers. It didn't really breed a good answer in the moment. I'll tell you, praise God, um, I was able to, as a parent, kind of slow my roll and say, that is a terrible tactic. And I was able to put my arm around the uh, individual that was having an issue with me, and I was with him. uh, And we were able to work it out in, in a much better way. But I want you to think about this question, even if we ask it in rude ways, 
Uh, it's easy to just put it on bad drivers. It's easy to put it on the entire feline species. It's e easy to put it on an angry parent or something and say, well, that's just their deal. I still think it's a good uh, question to answer, a good question to sit with. What is my problem? And as you're sitting here and you think about that, maybe your brain goes to some of these kinds of categories. Maybe you think your problem is other people. Maybe your problem is some kind of an authority figure, a teacher, a boss, the cops, the government. Maybe your problem is your environment. If I could just change that, I'd be good. Maybe your problem is the environment. Maybe your problem is something that you lack. Some people just ponder, man, if I just had more opportunities in education, if I just had more opportunities at work, if I had a better health or better energy, what is your problem? What I want to do is I want to attempt an answer, and I know it's a risk to sort of give the preacher like attempting an answer for you about your problem, but I want you to take a risk and listen, just listen to my reasoning with an open heart um, about what your problem is. And you may be thinking, you don't even know me or you don't know much about me. How, can you, how are you going to attempt to answer a question about this? Well, I know things about you. I know some things about you. And I know some things about you for one reason, and that's Revelation. Revelation is that God has said some things about us. He has instructed us. From the mind of God comes truth. So let me give you an example. I could have a number in my mind, and we could guess all day as to what that number is. But if I were to come to Tyler, who's sitting in the front row, and just tell Tyler what the number is, he would know the number. Why? Because I revealed it to him. All of life is guesswork without revelation from God. Even if we guessed right, we wouldn't even know that we guessed right. Let's say I had the number in my mind and everyone's throwing out guesses. One of you may chance upon it if we had enough time, but no one would give any credence to it because we wouldn't know if that was the real answer or not. God has chosen to whisper revelation into us. In fact, he did what we do. When something is most important, we write it down, don't we? We put things in contract. We write down instructions. I don't want you to forget this, so let me write it down. God did that for us. It's called the Bible. And the Bible is God's revelation for us. So we can know some things and not have a world full of guesswork, but actually have a framework for the world that we find ourselves in. So I'm going to share with you some things, not because I have insight, but because God has insight and he's revealed it. So here's three things. Number one, you are created to love. So this is more than something you just do or seek. Yes, we do love. Yes, we seek to be loved. But we are lovers through and through. And here's why. We're created in the image of God. And we'd have no idea what God was like if he didn't reveal himself to us. And part of the character and very nature of God is this. Quite simply, God is love. So being image bearers of our creator, we are lovers. We can't Turn this off. We're hosting a conference in a couple of weeks called Hope for the Journey. The target of this conference is particularly for those uh, parents and teachers and social workers who are um, loving kids and training up children who have had maybe some severe trauma in their background. And there's a statement by one of the presenters. His name is Darren. He said it a few different times and has stayed with me. He says this, everyone, everyone, this is why I can say I know this about you. Everyone comes into this world looking for someone looking for them. Everyone comes into this world looking for someone 
looking for them. What we know now about, you know, the, the baby mom experience right at birth is babies can see right about the distance of a mom holding their child. And babies come into this world, little lovers, longing to receive love and longing to give love. So we are lovers through and through. Number two, you're created to worship. When I say you're created to worship, I don't just mean on Sundays or on Saturdays, if it's a sports thing, or on opening day, like opening day of baseball, right? We are worshipers. Again, this is true through and through. We can't even turn this off. Everyone you've ever met is a ceaseless worshiper. It means they don't stop. We are all looking to attach our identity, our hopes, our dreams onto something or someone. Something or someone. Your happiness, peace, and salvation, it all rests somewhere. And that's because you're a ceaseless worshiper. Now, here's a third one, and I want to warn you, brace yourself. Go ahead and sit down. Okay, you are. Uh, because this one could be tough to hear, but it's just true. You are not only a lover and a worshiper, you're a sinner. Again, this is revelation from God. And we're sinners not just on our worst day, but actually on our best day. We're sinners not just because we, we do things that are wrong, but we left undone things that we ought to do. We're actually sinners to our core. It's not just something out there that we do or speak, but it's actually something that rests internal. So may I propose this idea? When someone asks, what is your problem? And we sit with that question long enough. The actual answer to the answer, the actual answer to the question is us. What is our problem? What do we need rescue from? It's our own sinful heart. The rescue you need rescue from is from you. Now, let me show you how these play out in a very, very tangible way that I think is identifiable to everyone here in this room. An overarching idea is this, that because we are sinners, we exchange the glory of God and the worship and love of God alone, and we substitute it for some, something else created, a created being, someone, or a created thing. Let me walk you through a couple of categories. Food is something we should enjoy. Amen? Amen. Some of you are thinking about food right now. You're already wondering what you get to eat soon. I saw some, saw some hearty nods right there. I was thinking about this, that you know, God could have made us any way that he wanted. He could have recharged us like Teslas, right? The human body needs to recharge. You just plug in. Think about this. In the afternoon, I'm like, Chuck, you look like you're dragging a little bit. Instead of a yummy cup of coffee or something, no, he just plugs in, right? Kind of sits there and waits to sort of recharge. That's not how God did it. God uses food for that. Food is a great thing. It's a gift from God. It's meant to be enjoyed. But isn't it possible that food could begin to rule? When food begins to rule, chaos ensues. So we use interesting terms. Um, I love some pizza I had earlier this week, and I'm saying here on Sunday, I love God. Interesting, right? Uh, you don't have to raise your hand, but anyone um, have any comfort foods? Interesting that we attach comfort to food. Uh, Again, don't necessarily raise your hand, but stress eaters, anyone? Right? You're like, I don't even know why I'm eating this. I really shouldn't be eating this. This is terrible for me. We eat for comfort. We eat, just, we eat to relieve stress. We say things like we love food. As you drive home from church today, look at all the idols, all the little temples that are around about food. 
right? And they are, they are designed to just like, that sounds good. And some, some uh, company, Starbucks, has done this. They've put so many of their temples around that like you're on a road trip. It's like, you know, Starbucks. You're like, I don't really need a Starbucks, you know. Starbucks, well, Starbucks isn't too bad. I need a Starbucks, you know. And there's, fortunately, there's always one within like 300 yards of wherever you're standing on planet Earth. So food is to be enjoyed, but it's not to be a ruling thing. How about relationships? Relationships are amongst the best gifts God has given. And yet when relationships turn into ruling things, that relationship begins to crumble. If it's a parent to a child, if it's friend to friend, if it's a spouse, those are relationships not meant to be God things, but to be good things that God has gifted to us. And what we see is we see the strain of that taking place when people begin um, to have their loves and worships sort of in disorder. We could go on and on with this. Think about work and aspiration and achievement, all good things. Those are good things that can become a replacement where we begin to find our identity in the things that we achieve. We begin to find a hope or a jolt of satisfaction in that achievement or in that notoriety. We just sing about man's empty praise. How about leisure or exercise or comfort or security or entertainment? This could go on and on and on. Good things that become little g God things. And when that happens, things become a mess. In fact, I would say that is the problem. Our disordered loves our disordered worship. Now here's the incredibly glorious good news of great joy that the angels announced at Jesus' birth to some shepherds in a field. That God comes to our rescue. He came to our rescue and he comes to our rescue. And that's the incredibly good news. What is demanded to make things right and keep things right is so far beyond us. In fact, here's a, here's a truth. The more gray hair you have, or maybe the less hair that you have, the more you know this to be true. The older I get, the more I realize that when God is not at the center, things begin to get chaotic. Not at first, but things always spin out of control. There's two ways that people tend toward trying to make things right. The religious path is trying to do good or be good and avoid evil. Religion is always trying to help God out in this process of a sinful heart. But there's some problems with that that we'll look in, in the end or in, in a couple of minutes. Bottom line is it doesn't work. Religion leads to pride. Look at all the good I'm doing and all those poor slobs who aren't doing nearly as good as me. Or it leads to despair. The longer you try religion, the more you know that you can clean up the outside of the cup while the inside is full of deadness. That's religion. Some people say religion is a crazy way to go. Just live a life of rebellion. They don't call it rebellion. They call it a life of self-ruling fun. And the rebellious are charging ahead, actually ignoring right and wrong. And rebellion is always fun for a season or else we wouldn't do it. But rebellion catches up with us. Rebellion, because it's centered on a sinful perception of love and worship, always leads to ruin. It leads to de depression. What's more with rebellion is this. When you look behind you, there is a wake of pain that is left behind rebellious people. If you are self-ruling yourself, look behind you. There's, there's a wake of pain of people that you've been touching um, and, and we're able to see that. So the solution can only from, come from God, 
And the, the immensity and the, the thoroughness of our sin problem uh, is, is actually so huge uh, that what's, what's required is a complete heart transplant. And when we talk about hearts and love, hearts involve blood. Now, let me show you one of my favorite sweatshirts um, that I wear around sometimes, and it always tends to get a, a big reaction. And I didn't really wear it at first because I thought it would get a big reaction, but this is a sweatshirt that I like to wear. And when I'm wearing this sweatshirt, a lot of people will come up and talk to me. And a lot of times I'm realizing, for whatever reason, this sweatshirt, um, it draws me into a lot of conversations with, like, anarchists. Because they'll see my sweatshirt, like, that's an awesome sweatshirt, man. Where'd you get it? I said, well, I was a speaker at a summer camp one time, and, um, you know, this has some meaning to it. Well, what's the meaning to it? I said, well, the, the whole theme was real love. And instead of like thinking about fake love and sort of a surfacey love, we were talking about the real love of God. You see here it says real love on the sweatshirt. And so instead of a cute little clean-looking heart, we thought we'd put a real heart on there. Oh. So you're not trying to like overthrow the government? And I'm like, well, actually sort of. Um, have you ever heard of Jesus? Because Jesus actually did sort of overthrow the government, but probably not in the way that you're thinking. Um, it, it actually involves some, something called real love. And so sometimes the, the conversation deteriorates very, very quickly. But I genuinely have had some really interesting conversations. So um, if you ever want a good conversation starter, get a heart shirt. Think about how we talk about the heart. We use the word heart in all kinds of language. We say things like, someone stole my heart or broke my heart. We give our heart to people. We tell people, put your heart into it. People with long mullets sing about achy, breaky hearts, right? The heart of Tefiti. We see it all over the place. The heart, the heart, the heart, the heart. The Bible talks about the heart also. Think about this. There's no more universal or vital organ in your body than the heart. That heart's not beaten. You're done. Nothing else really matters. So the Bible speaks about the heart as the seat of our emotion. And here's some of the ways it talks about it. Jesus said this, for wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what we've been talking about is this, whatever commands your love and your worship decides the direction of your life. You actually cannot have it be any other way. Let me have you do a little experiment right from the comfort of your own seat. Extroverts and introverts and those who don't know can all play. Ready? Here we go. On the count of three at the same time, I want you to look at this cross and I want you to look at the empty tomb, okay? On the count of three, look at both at the exact same time. One, two, three, go. Okay, here's what's, here's what's good news. I'm in a room full of sinners. Sin means to miss the mark. You all failed at it. Why? Because you can't do that. You cannot look over here and over here at the same time. Jesus said this, you cannot serve two masters. It's just a simple statement of truth. Where your loves and your worship go, that does decide the direction of your life. Part of my own testimony as a 17-year-old kid was this. I wanted, I believed in God. I believed he had reward for me. I believed he had reward in this life as well as the next. I wanted everything God had to offer in this life and the next. And I wanted everything that this world had to offer apart from God. That was my dilemma. You want to ask what my problem was? My parents would have told you different things on any given day. That was my problem. And in an instant, in a service just like this, 
God opened my eyes to it, and I chose God. I haven't looked back since. 17 years old. You cannot look in two different directions. Why? Because our love and our worship determines the direction of our life. Oh, Jesus talks about all kinds of things. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. You want to know what's in someone's heart? Listen to them. Listen to their mouth. Jesus talked about you can clean uh, the outside of the cup or the person, but inside is what God sees. God knows your heart. Let me tell you perhaps one of the most devastating um, exposures of the human heart, and this comes from Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. You ready for it? Here it is. It's on your screen. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I'll tell you why this is so devastating. This lays all of us open and bare. I don't know how long you think you've had a pure heart for, but let's say you think like for a whole month, a whole season of your life, a month of your life, you kept a pure heart. Maybe it was a week, maybe a 48-hour period, maybe five minutes. I don't know how long you think you've had a pure heart, but how do you even keep that going? Who sees God, the pure in heart? Who on earth has a pure heart? None of us. Here's the incredibly good news. Here's what we celebrate and sing and weep over when we sing these lyrics. The one who made your heart knows how to fix your heart. And the fix to your heart is a transplant. It's being given an entire new heart. If you want to open a Bible today, I hope you do. Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel 36. If you want, there's a Bible sitting in front of you. You're welcome to take that home if you don't have one. Uh, But feel free to use the table of contents. Ezekiel 36 is where I'm going to get to in just a moment. Don't panic. You have time. Here's what I'm convinced of. Every person I've ever seen and everyone in this room, I'm convinced God right now is winning and wooing your heart. And a part of the winning and wooing process of the human heart is exposing the heart, laying it bare, exposing when our our loves are off base. Think about a physical heart transplant. When you ponder getting a physical heart transplant, it's really scary. You know that it involves pain. It feels utterly risky. It's the same that's true with a spiritual heart transplant. How about this? A physical uh, heart transplant demands your consent. No one just comes in and trades out your heart for you. You have to consent to it. And anytime you've ever had a heart transplant physically, it's required faith, hasn't it? Not blind faith, just like the Christian faith. Jesus and the Bible never demands blind faith. That's sort of a fallacy that people sometimes believe. You wouldn't blindly trust a doctor to rip open your chest cavity and mess around with your heart. You'd do some research. You'd want to get a little bit of background on some experience and some of the things that has gone on. But eventually, all heart transplants require faith. At some point, you've got to put your trust in another person. Here's one more thing about a heart transplant. The only criterion, Jesus said he was the good doctor. The only criterion for getting a heart transplant is that you must need one. If you don't think you need a change of heart, you'll never be a candidate for a heart transplant. That makes sense, doesn't it? And so it's voluntary. It's something you have to recognize that you actually need to do this big of a jump. You know, the idea of transformation, I'll tell you what we've watched in here. We came into a stark, empty tomb. Taylor and Tao and others, you guys did an amazing job on our empty tomb. 
Uh, this was not, you don't just go to like empty tombs R us and buy these. Like this was just the blood, sweat, and tears of our own people being here. But we got to see a grave turn into a garden here in, fr- in front of our eyes. Something that was stark and stony that, that has now bloomed and come to life. What a beautiful picture of transformation. We love this storyline. We love it in our movies. We love it in our literature. There's something in us that says, if that character on screen can change, maybe there's hope for me. If that dead place in that couple has, has come to life again, maybe there's hope in my marriage. So we love this idea of transformation. If you don't know him by name, let me introduce you. There's a character called Eustace Scrub. He's from the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, C.S. Lewis, the Narnia series. And Eustace, we're introduced to as a greedy, selfish, kind of a snobbish kid. And in Narnia, he discovers a pile of dragon's treasure. Now, here's what's really curious. He doesn't even believe in Narnia, and yet he finds himself in the story. What a beautiful picture. Eustace falls asleep on top of this towering stack of crowns and jewels and gold coins. And when he wakes up the next morning, he makes an incredibly awful discovery. Eustace, the boy, has turned into Eustace, the dragon. And as a dragon, he uh, sees his reflection uh, in in a lake. And C.S. Lewis writes it this way. He says, sleeping on a dragon's hoard with greedy, dragonish thoughts in his heart, he had become a dragon himself. Turns out in Narnia, if you think dragon thoughts and do dragon things, you actually become a dragon. Now pause for a second in the story. This is exactly what we see with loves and worship. You actually can't help but become what you love and worship. And as sinners, we will steer that wrong unless we are made right. So back to Eustace. Eustace isn't who he used to be. The first transformation is him from sort of snobbish little boy into a dragon. And he's not who he used to be. He isn't who he wants to be. Eustace isn't who he was created and designed to be. The only friends he has are terrified in him. In the story, Eustace reluctantly and fearfully agrees to let Aslan shed his scales. He lies down on his dragon back, and Aslan plunges his enormous claws, catch this, into Eustace's chest. The pain is unbearable. Finally, the lion reaches deep into the chest cavity of the dragon, and he pulls out a small, trembling boy who's dripping with filth, and Aslan throws Eustace's pale body into the waters of the well. In a few moments, Eustace breaks the surface and gasps for some air. He's no longer a dragon. Eustace is finally the boy he was created to be. He's washed, and he's clean, and he's changed, and he's made whole. The friends who were once terrified him are now around him and friends with him again. In fact, one of his friends, Edmund, says this. He says, you have been, well, undragoned. What a picture of transformation. First from the heart of a dragon to a real dragon, then from a monster to a boy again, but not like the boy that he was before. Look at the terminology, the idea, the imagery. He was washed, 
He was cleaned. He was changed. And notice this, the transformation was not accomplished by peeling off layers of scales. Notice that the transformation wasn't done by him or any of his friends. No one else could do it. The transformation was done by ripping open a chest cavity and pulling something out from inside. Friend, you and I are born with stony hearts. My mom's an incredible artist, and she likes to take stones and just bless her neighbors by painting up some rocks and leaving them on their doorstep. I said, Mom, I want one of those, so this lives in my office. Now, this stone is painted pretty nice, but if this were my heart, this is the stony heart God says all of us are born with, and stony hearts are dead to the things of God. They're not soft and pliable to the things of God. They're hardened. Look at Ezekiel chapter 36 with me. Verse 26, just two verses. It says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all of my rules. More than getting a fresh start, more than turning over a new leaf, more than a resolution, more than recycling, more than a restart. A brand new heart is required for a brand new life in God. And I want you to notice who's doing the doing. This is the gospel. This is the good news. I will give you a new heart. I will remove the heart of stone. I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit. I will cause you to walk. In fact, so complete is the change required, and so helpless are we to accomplish it, and so universal, Jesus comes along, and he builds off the Old Testament prophet here in Ezekiel. And he comes along, and he says this. He says, you must be born again. You must be born again. Jesus is picking up on this theme, no heart transplant is ever accomplished by the person needing it. None of you in this room were cognizant or instrumental in your own birth. It's something God does to us and for us. In fact, as passive recipients, all that's left for us to do is to walk in this new life, to receive it with joy. And that's what we do. Look at Colossians chapter 3. This is the utter folly of all religion. That somehow doing good is going to balance out our sin. Our sin doesn't need to be balanced out. It needs to be blotted out. And we see this in our own courtrooms as well. Colossians chapter 2 says this. You were dead because of your sins. And because your sinful nature was not yet cut away, your dragony scales were not yet cut away, then God made you alive with Christ For he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. True, everlasting salvation is from God alone. Once again, who's doing the doing? He does the saving. We're dead and we can't help. He's the one who makes us alive. He's the one who forgives. He's the one who cancels out our sin. The heart of the matter is shown right here in this verse, these last few words. The heart of the matter is the heart. 
And hearts always involve blood. Real hearts involve real blood. How did he accomplish all of this? It says by nailing it to the cross. The Bible talks about it making a public spectacle. That is, he bore sin. It transfers, it substitutes to us freedom and forgiveness. Jesus was talking before the cross with his disciples, and he told them in advance. He does this all through his life. He tells them in advance so that when it happens, they would believe. Look at how he's talking about his own death. It says, and he took the cup of wine and gave thanks to it, to God for it. And he gave it to them and said, each of you drink from it, for this is my blood. There it is which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Hear me really clearly. Every time you celebrate communion, his blood wasn't spilled out by accident. It was poured out on purpose. Jesus knew what he was doing and what he was accomplishing it. Those who are his followers looking back after the cross, after the resurrection, talk about it this way. Ephesians 1, 7 says this, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. So God solves our problem by the shedding of his blood. Someone commits a heinous crime. You know what people want? Just people want blood. They want his blood. We would say it sometimes in this way. There's going to be hell to pay for that person. Here's the message of what you're looking at on stage right now. Is that his blood, Jesus's, is substituted to us sinners. God, instead of just, he can't just be just and wave away heinous crimes. He substitutes it by seeing Jesus as paying the cost. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. We had a multi-generational all-women's choir on purpose. We wanted to highlight something really remarkable. Isn't it beautiful and just like God to sort of tell the story in all kinds of different ways? The first two people on planet earth that saw and heard and got to visually witness and bear witness to the empty tomb, to the risen Christ, are two women. And you know what? The men didn't believe him. <laughs> they come running back They're like, this is true. They're like, that sounds like utter nonsense. Here's what's really powerful. After announcing the good news, do you know what the angels say? They say, come and see where they've laid him. They're offering evidence. If you're not a Christian here today or you think, I don't want to be a blind faith idiot. I don't want you to be either. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Come and see the place where they've laid him. That's the angel. When the women go rushing back to the community, ancient people aren't just idiots who believe in resurrection. They didn't believe them because dead people stay dead. What did they do? They ran to the tomb to have a look for themselves. So evidence is something that you ought to pursue. Here's the beautiful thing. I think it was Jen this week. I can't remember who said this exactly, but it made it into the sermon on Sunday. Isn't it beautiful that Jesus is not here? We don't have a Jesus on the cross because he's not on the cross. He was there for a spell, Good Friday, and Jesus is no longer in here. You know where Jesus resides? He resides here. Not even here, that's a symbol. In here, not even your blood pumping muscle. In here, 
The presence of the holy God no longer dwells in temples made by people. But he says, in the last days, I'm going to come and dwell in my people, with my people. The Spirit of God will be with you wherever you go. That's the total transformation that happens. Let me tell you what happens every single year. Every single year, an incredible transformation goes on. It's happening all around you right now. After an incredibly wet winter, that which was dead and dormant is springing to life all around us. Some of you with allergies are like, <coughs> amen, <laughs> right? It's everywhere. I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. He says, when spring comes, it leaves no corner of the land untouched. Even deserts bloom. When God comes and brings to life that which is dead in us, friend, there's not a cell in your body, there's not a room in the uh, house of your heart that is left untouched by this. It is utter and total transformation. You and I have a choice this morning. We saying, you turn graves into gardens. You're the only one who can. There's a voice from on high telling you this is the way to life. Come to it. In just a few moments or perhaps before church this morning, little children were running around or going to be running around looking for eggs. Here's what's awesome about very tiny kids hunting for eggs. When we've let our kids out to go hunt for eggs, they will spot a little yellow egg at the far end of the yard. And they will run out with their little basket, making a beeline for that egg at the far end of the yard. You know what they've done? They have passed over 27 eggs on the way to that egg. And here's what's amazing. All the parents are like, no, stop and get those eggs because we're into efficiency. We're into greed. We're like, get the easy ones first before someone else gets them. But you know what? Sometimes kids, they don't hear any of that. They make a beeline for that which is going to make them happy. Here's us. Oftentimes, I think we we have our eyes fixed on an egg across the yard. There's a trustworthy, (laughs) non-greedy voice from on high calling us, telling us, no, 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 come over here. True reward is over here. And we have our love and our worship focused on that which is not going to satisfy Man, would you come on up right now? We're going to close with two amazing things. I can't think of a better way to close out Easter. We're going to sing an incredible song that's just listen for. It's going to carry some of the themes we've been talking about. But what's more, we're going to wrap up our service with um, two of our uh, church family members getting baptized this morning. And baptism is just a picture of dying. Going under the water is dying to our old self. And because Jesus didn't stay in the groom in, in, in the tomb, but he walked out alive, we get to follow our leader out of the grave. And that's where we get to be raised to newness of life. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Listen to this last part of it. All of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? God, I just thank you for this morning. I thank you that we get to worship you, not just on Sundays, not just on Easter Sunday, but every day. God, I thank you that each sunrise is a kind of awakening um, and 
God, as the sun leaves no part of our earth untouched when it rises, it's a beautiful picture tomorrow morning, Monday morning, that your mercies are new. God, I thank you for those of us who have made this profession of faith, who are following you. Would you let us uh, continue in that direction afresh each day? And God, for those who are undecided yet, Lord, I pray they would feel welcome to come and explore the Christian faith and what that means here again next week. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for pursuing us. In Jesus' name, amen.